0: Good morning. Two weeks in a row. I'm not sure who approved of this. (laughs) Well, it is great to be back here again having another week with you guys. We are continuing reviewing uh, our our series here in the I Am Statements found in the Gospel of John. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn now to John chapter 14. We're going to be at verse 6. While you're turning there, we want to take a moment to welcome any first-timers with us this morning. We are very happy and glad that you decided to worship with us this morning at Durwood Bible Church. You may have noticed some uh, different speakers throughout the summer. We also just want to remind people and let you know if it's your first time that uh, every seven years, the elders give uh, our preaching pastor, Colin, a three-month sabbatical. And that's just a special time for him to, to spend with his family, have that quality time with his family, and to hit that refresh button. Many of us uh, have been there and need that, so we totally understand it. Um, because of the pandemic, though, I think it's been like eight years since his last sabbatical. But the light is at the end of the tunnel. He will return to us uh, in the first week of September. We're very excited to, to have him and his wife back with us. Uh, and with that said, let's go ahead and pray for them as they're, they're finishing up that sabbatical. Father, uh, we come before you this morning in, in awe of your word, how, how pure <laughs> your word is that we are studying Father, I pray for a revelation this morning that as we look into uh, how you describe yourself, Lord, that you, you reveal to us uh, new knowledge to draw closer to you, Father, that our relationship with you is, is built on your word. And Lord, as Pastor Colin and, and Christine are finishing up their time together in sabbatical, uh, we just want to first thank you for the leadership and the shepherding that they bring to Durwood Bible Church. Lord, it, they are an awesome couple, and, and the things that they have done here are, are incredible. And we also want to thank Pastor Mike and, and Anna and, and for all the things that they do, and the youth in this church as well, the, the leadership of this church is incredible, and we give you the praise and the honor for that, Lord. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Yeah, so last week we started uh, by looking at how Jesus echoes the words of God the Father, going all the way back to Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. God is talking to Moses, and he He says, I am who I am. He he describes himself this way. That's literally translated, exists, that which exists. God has no beginning origin. He is the great I am. And Jesus uses that same phrase. Now, the the scribes, the Pharisees, the Jews, they're very familiar with this language. So when Jesus says, I am, they knew exactly what he was talking about. And in chapter uh, 14, verse 6 of John's Gospel, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is only one way, one truth, and one life. But this morning, we're going we're gonna to break this down. But first, before we break it down, we need the context. Why does Jesus say this? Who is he saying it to? What is happening? What's going on for him to say these very words? So in order to get that context, We're going to go back one chapter to to chapter 13. I'm going to summarize it for you. I I encourage you to read along in your Bible or follow along on the screen. Going back to the beginning of chapter 13, we, we see the disciples and Jesus are getting ready to celebrate the Passover feast. And if you're unfamiliar with the Passover, this is a, a yearly feast that Jews still celebrate today. And it's a time to remember when God had led the, the uh, Hebrews out of Egyptian slavery. Now, as we read this in our, in our text in the Holy Bible, we call it the Last Supper because it is the Last Supper that Jesus has before he is betrayed, arrested, beaten, and crucified for our sins. Now moving into verses 3 through 12, uh, we see Jesus getting up from the table, and he wraps his towel around his waist, and he, he washes the feet of the disciples. And I want to highlight a passage, verses 6 through 9, that Jesus has with, with Peter. It is both funny and beautiful. Verse 6, he, he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. I think we can see the humor in that. Peter goes from, Lord, do you wash my feet? You shall never wash my feet. To not just my feet, but my hands and my head too. But this passage is also beautiful. Because Jesus, who we will see in a moment, is called teacher and Lord. Right? With, with titles like that, he is the authority. The one who is giving the instruction. The one who is teaching. He is the discipler. Yet he humbled himself. He, he got down to, to do the lowest job of the lowest servant in the household. That was the, the lowest job of the lowest servant was to wash the feet of those who came in. You know got to remember they're walking in the, in the desert in their wearing sandals, so their feet were filthy. Now Jesus, knowing exactly that his, that his hour is coming, that he 's about to be betrayed, knowing who is going to betray him, knowing what is about to happen, the very pain that he 's about to endure, physically being beaten emotionally being verbally abused, mentally being forced to carry my cross to bridge the gap between man and God, and spiritually being separated for the first time from God the Father. Knowing all of that, he didn't stop serving. He continued to be the disciple. He continued to minister to his men. That's beautiful. Now, after washing their feet, come to verse 12, Jesus, he, he returns to a spot at this table, and he asks the disciples, he says, do you understand what I have done to you? And in verse 13, he says, you call me teacher and Lord, there's those titles right there, and you are right, for so I am. And if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do, just as I have done for you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Do we really understand what Christ has done for us? If we're being honest with ourselves, are we really ready, able, and willing to wash the feet of those around us like Christ did? If we call him Lord and teacher, are we doing what he has taught us to do? These are questions that we should be asking ourselves, even if it means to do the lowest job of the lowest servant. Have we committed ourselves to him in these ways? Now, I know there is a large need in this church right now for setting up chairs on Sunday mornings. Uh, It's usually the same three or four guys who show up 8.30 on Sunday mornings to set up all the chairs for us, for them to then be taken down just two hours later. If this is an area that you can serve in, we would gladly appreciate it. You can visit us at the Connect desk and we'll get you that information. Moving into verse 21 now. After saying those things, Jesus is troubled. He's literally agitated in his spirit. And he tells the disciples that one of them will betray him. And uncertain of who Jesus spoke about, one of the disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at the table by Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him asking, uh, to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? In verse 26, Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. Morsel is a fancy word for piece or fragment. So when he, Jesus, dipped the morsel of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he took the morsel, Satan entered into Judas. And Jesus said to Judas, what you're going to do, do quickly. Now we know this conversation between Jesus and that disciple leaning against him was done in private. We, we know this because when we come to verses 28 through 30. It says, no one at the table knew why Jesus said those words to Judas. Some of them thought Judas, because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him to, to uh, buy what they needed for the feast, the Passover feast. Or they should give something to the poor, but regardless of what they thought, Judas knew, and Jesus knew and so when Judas received that morsel of bread, he immediately left into the night now jesus he he continues ministering to his disciples, knowing that Judas just left to go collect his thirty pieces of silver, knowing that Judas is going to bring back soldiers to arrest him, knowing. His hour has come, but he doesn't stop ministering. He doesn't stop discipling. He doesn't stop teaching. He continues several chapters on, but we're going to highlight another passage between Jesus and Peter. Looking at verse 33, little children, this is to the whole table. So everyone is listening to this now. Yet a little while I'm with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, So now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Jumping down to verse 36, Simon Peter asked, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Still confused and not totally understanding, Peter, (laughs) he probes Jesus again in verse 37. Lord, why can I not follow you? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus responds with this prophecy. He says, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. And we know from Scripture that Peter is spotted three different times by members of the crowd as one of them. And all three times, Peter denies. He denies knowing Jesus, he denies being a follower, he denies being one of the disciples. But right after saying that, truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. In chapter 14, verse 1, Jesus says, but let not your hearts be troubled. Pay attention to this, because Jesus is hes comforting the disciples. He's saying, that, hey, you're human. You're going to fail. But because I have washed you clean, I've cleansed you, I've washed your feet, because I have washed you clean, I will not forsake you. That is beautiful. He's assuring the disciples that whatever happens next is part of the plan. It's part of his plan. So let not your hearts be troubled, but believe in God and believe also in me. Don't lose faith. Don't lose hope. Keep on trusting and believing in God and me. Amen. Again, continuing, Jesus doesn't stop. He just keeps rolling from one one teaching to the next. Verse 2, he says, And in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also." want to pause here for a moment and spend a little time in here, uh, because this is one of the most beautiful and intimate passages in the New Testament, and it's so often and wildly taken out of context. Now, I am not here to ruffle any feathers on purpose. Uh, I'm simply here to present the gospel in the true form that it is written, bringing that context to light, okay? So please, please hear that. Uh, first, depending on your translation, it might read rooms or mansion, okay? Now, in our Western culture, we hear that word mansion, and we think, ooh, I get my mansion. Let me serve in these ministries. Let me, let me build that mansion. No, that's, that's not how this works, all right? Uh, the Greek word that is used here is mané. That's my best pronunciation, It means lodging, dwelling place, room, abode, or mansion. But rest assured that many of our homes today would be considered mansions by New Testament standards. Okay? (laughs) Now, the average size home in America is almost 2,300 square feet. By comparison, homes in America are larger than any other country, with the exception of Australia, okay? Australia is number one, America is number two. So even by today's standards, a mansion is only relative, right? What you might consider a mansion, I might consider a castle. What someone in a different country would consider a mansion, we in America might consider a small apartment. It's all relative, So, when we read, in my Father's house are many rooms, Jesus is literally telling us that he's providing for us a dwelling place. The size of that dwelling place does not matter. What does matter is the fact of of entering, the blessing of entering the presence of God. Amen? Amen. Second, we need to understand that this is beautiful, intimate wedding language. Again, I'm just going to present the culture of this time, okay? As we might know, marriages were arranged marriages. Even today, some marriages in the Middle East are still arranged. It's it's a cultural thing. I recently heard a pastor share a story that about uh, 10 or 15 years ago, he went to, I think he said Israel, and he was with his family and his daughter at the time was a teenager, and he said in in Arab Israeli, uh, pulled up in his car, got out, approached him, and offered thirty camels for his daughter. Uh, now this pastor laughed; he thought the guy was joking. And then I guess the price went up to forty, then fifty. <laughs> he was not joking; he was really serious. And so it's even a cultural thing today. It's not as often as it used to happen but apparently it still happens but anyway back in this time of of what we're reading this morning how this worked was families would negotiate a marriage contract for their sons and daughters to marry okay and this could start as young as 2 years old not all the time but it happened now, what would happen is, once this negotiation, once this contract was finalized, and, and the male became of age, the couple would then say their marriage vows, and this entered them into the betrothal period. Okay? The betrothal period, on average, lasted one year and one day. What happened in this one year was a lot of things, uh, but the groom, he would leave. He would depart from his bride, and he would return to his father's house. And he would spend the next several months to a year of building a Monet, Monet, however you pronounce it. Okay. This room, lodging or dwelling place was in addition to his father's house. It was for him, his bride and their future children. Meanwhile, the bride returned to her father's house. She would spend this next year preparing to leave. She was no longer looked at as a child, doing the chores of a child, but now she is being taught how to be the wife of the house, how to take care of children, how to take care of the house. During this betrothal period, the couple had no marital intimacy, and the groom was exempt from all military duties. His job was to prepare a place in the father's house for his new family. And since this was true for all the family members, it was common to have several generations living under one roof, but with many rooms built on. Each addition to the family provided in addition to the house. They made room in the father's house. Then at the end of this one year, at the end of this betrothal period, that groom would return to his bride, take her, they would consummate the marriage as their own, and they'd begin this massive seven-day feast known as the marriage celebration. So when we read this passage, we need to understand that it's wedding talk. It's not uh, us getting our, our own mansion like we might want. But church, Jesus, having already been to earth has returned to the Father's house and he is preparing a place for his bride, us, the church. Amen? We are in the betrothal period. Jesus Christ will return again and bring us to our new dwelling place. The question is, are you ready? Like the bride, are we preparing ourselves to leave this earthly home? Are we ready for the groom, Jesus Christ, to return from the betrothal period and bring us into our new dwelling place, into the Father's house. Now he tells us right there in verse 3, he says, and if I go, pay attention to that word if right there, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will, these are promises now, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also, but this will only happen if you have committed yourself to Jesus Christ. Amen. Then Thomas, many know as, doubting Thomas, yes, he asked a lot of questions. Yes, he said he would not believe unless he saw with his own two eyes the scars in Jesus' hand. But don't many Christians today Ask the Lord to reveal himself in a way that they might understand, that they might believe. In verse 4, Jesus says, "If you know the way to where I am going. Thomas says to Jesus in verse 5, he says, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And here it is. Jesus answers, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It is only through Jesus Christ that we may come to the Father's house. Now what's beautiful about this is in the Greek we have the the definite article, the, between way, truth, and life. This makes it crystal clear to us that there is no alternative. Jesus is the way and the only way. Jesus is the life and the only life. He is the the truth, and the only truth. There's no other way, there's no other truth, there's no other life except through him. Now let's go ahead and break these down. First one is I am the way. The Greek word here for way is hodas. Bear with my pronunciation, okay? This means way, road, journey, or path. Now, in all of his teachings, Jesus is very clear. He never says, I am a way. He says, I am the way. There's only one way to the Father, and that is through Jesus Christ. He is our path. All other ways, all other paths, all other journeys lead us astray. Whether it's different religions, ways of our culture, paths that society tells us that we should take to be better people, You know, one significant issue that Christianity faces today, aside from our culture in general, uh, is pluralism. Okay, If you're unfamiliar with what pluralism is, it's this widespread belief, there are churches built around this now, and I just experienced this last week at the park with my daughters, uh, a family who goes to one of these churches. It's this widespread belief that, It doesn't matter what religion you're a part of, all religions will lead you to heaven. It's the idea that whether you're Mormon, Jehovah's Witness, Buddha, Buddhist, uh, Hindu, whatever, that following these religions is simply a unique way of worshiping God. Now what's sad and scary about this is many professing Christians today Proclaim pluralism to not only be a good thing, but they also consider it good theology. It is not. All other paths that this world offers, some of them will seem awesome. Some of them will seem amazing. Some of them will seem incredible. But a lot of them will lead to a different different life beyond the grave. Instead of taking you to the, the presence and the glory of God, they will lead to the lake of fire. And We need to be aware of this. The question I have is, what path are we on? Are we on the straight and narrow? Have we deviated from that path? Are we trying to find our way back? Are we searching for this path? I want you to know that we have people walking around that have a name tag, deacons, elders, greeters. Uh, If if any of these are uh, things that you're struggling with, please talk to one of these people, okay? I am the truth. John begins his letter in chapter 1, verse 1. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Scripture, the Word of God, is the Word of truth. The Greek word for truth that's used here is aletheia. That means truth, but not in the mere uh, spoken sense, but truth of idea, reality, sincerity. Truth in the moral sphere. Divine truth revealed to man. Now, according to this world, there are many types of truth. I don't understand this, but there are dozens of different types of truth. Okay? The three main types of truth that we're being taught today are normative, subjective, and objective. Normative truth is what we as a group agree to be true. The sun is up, it's daytime. The sun is down, it is nighttime. Subjective truth is how an individual sees or experiences this world. Johnny wins a million dollars, he says, this is the best day ever. Little Susie falls off her bike. She scrapes her knees and her elbows. And she says, this is the worst day ever. Same day, different truths. Then there is objective truth. Objective truth is what exists and cannot be proven false. The earth rotates. I think if the earth stopped rotating, we wouldn't be here to find out any other truth, right? Now, this world will tell us that our belief in heaven and hell are normative truths. In fact, every year, more and more Christians are believing the lie that hell is not a real place, that it's a made-up one. And the reasoning they give is because it's too scary. But let that not be so. I'm here to tell you this morning that hell is as real as earth as is real as heaven. Amen? John 17:17 17, 17, Jesus is praying this really intense prayer to the Father. He says, "Purify them in your truth. Purify them in truth. Your word is truth." Jesus is the truth and therefore the source of all truth. The Dalai Lama, Gandhi, Muhammad, Joseph Smith, all of the religious leaders have created a false gospel. Not one of them taught the truth, nor do any of their religions teach the truth today. There is only one truth, and that is Jesus Christ. Lastly, I am the life. Jesus says, I am the life. Now, there are two Greek words in Scripture used for the word life. Bios, which means Life, living, the physical sense is where we get our word biology from, the study of life. And the other word is zoe, and this is the word that Jesus uses in this text. This is more than the physical life form of bios. This is both physical, the present now, but also the spiritual and the future existence. Jesus is very clear that he is the source of both our physical and spiritual life. And the question is, does your, what does your eternal life look like? You might have one awesome bios, but what about your Zoe? Jesus is the way to God, the truth about God, and the life of God. Not one of us, including myself, will come to the Father's house without the washing of Jesus Christ. Without Jesus Christ, we are destined to the lake of fire. But by the grace of God, you have been given the chance to know him, to accept him as the truth of all truths, as the way of all ways in the life of eternity. Church, we are in the betrothal period. Jesus has gone to the Father's house to prepare a room for those who have committed themselves to Him, to those who believe that He is the way, that He is the truth, that He is the life. Do you believe these things? Have you committed yourself to Him in these ways? So how do we develop a real, authentic, transformative relationship with Him that That brings such a life. I'm so glad you guys asked me that. One of these ways is through personal habits. Prayer. Reading the word. Asking Jesus what he wants from you. Asking the Holy Spirit to bring you under conviction. Taking time to adore God for who he is and not just what he does for you. Another area is discipleship. Being accountable to someone. Letting them know your, your journey, your, your regular struggles in life. Confessing your sins that Satan would have you hide in shame. Church, let us not be a church that is a, a mile wide, but only an inch thick. Let our lives be so rooted in our personal relationship with God that we can weather any storm. Let us walk in emotional maturity, being slow to anger and quick to love and exhort. We are walking in true freedom when we live beyond the head knowledge and align our lives as though this world has nothing for us because we are running so hard after Jesus. But we must commit ourselves To the Lord, placing our trust in Christ and in Christ alone. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We have been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ, and it is through him and him alone that we might come into the Father's house. He is the way. He is the truth, and He is the life. And no one comes to the Father except through Jesus. Please bow your heads. Father, thank You so much for Your Word, for us to truly understand what it means when You say that You are preparing a place for us, Lord, that we would humble ourselves in your word to recognize that we don't deserve a mansion. We don't deserve a crown full of jewels and rubies, but Lord, it is the blessing of being in the presence of the Father, being in the Father's house. Lord, for us to recognize that that you are the way and the truth and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through you. Lord, as you got down on your knees that day, and you washed the feet of your disciples the lowest job of the lowest servant in the house lord convict our hearts to do the same show us how we can do that in our church in our homes in our community in our in our families lives lord lord thank you for bearing that cross for taking on my sins That I might know you. That we have a chance to enter your eternal marital bliss in the Father's house. Amen.